it has been pretty remarkable to take this book and pretty um, cumbersome too to walk through this book, but to see how God's revealed Himself through this book and and to see the attributes of God and who He is and how He deals with us as we walk through this. I hope for you as for me. And Mike um, and Tim, I hope this has been something that has been helpful for you. I know it has been for me to study through it. And today we get the opportunity to take a look at Exodus 34. And I'm going to read it, and then let's pray together that God would somehow, in only the way that he does, illuminate his scripture to us and, and do something in our hearts that, that changes us and helps us to get to know him better. Amen? Let's pray. God, we just thank you. For who you are, we ask that you would, through your word, do what only you can do. Show us a little bit more about who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be. And do it in a way, God, we ask in our hearts this morning, like you've never done it before. We ask that you would open our hearts up to your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So this is a long passage. We're going to read it together. Um, it should be up on the screen, and uh, hopefully I can see it. Exodus 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there, I'm sorry, and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children, in the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare. In your midst, you shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, 
lest you take a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons. And their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib, for the month Abib you shall come out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you, and in larger borders no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. You shall not offer the blood of any sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain the morning, the best of the first fruits. Your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord, the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin on his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel that he was commanded, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses. But the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face <coughs> until he went to speak with him. Amen. So there's Exodus 34. Gordon Fee, a professor at Regent College up in Vancouver, British Columbia. I don't know if he's the first guy to say this, but he's the guy I read it from. He made a quote. He said, everybody has a theology. The question is whether or not it's a good one. Right? Everyone believes something about God. Everybody thinks something about God. The question is whether or not it's good. Does that make sense? You know, and, and what we recognize as we walk through the Word of God and as we study together and as we look at who God reveals Himself to be to us, this theology, this understanding of God, this study of God and who He is should produce in us what? Doxology. It should produce in us a life that worships. That's what I thought about when I read this passage over the last couple of weeks, in particular the last several days. I want God in my relationship with Him 
to reveal to me more and more who he is. And then my prayer is that it produces in me worship, right? I mean, I think that's ultimately what we see in this passage, too. God wants us, and we're going to talk about it in a minute as we walk through it together, to worship him and him alone. Amen? And, and we, we, I say that word worship, and I know that, like, as we talk about language, you know, we say that about love. We say it about a lot of different things, these words that are overused. When I say the word worship, I know it hits my brain or it hits your brain, and it registers through the synapses in your brain and through your experience and through all the ways you've heard that word and all the things that you know about it, and it pops out a definition at the end that probably isn't exactly what the word worship really is in this passage. Does that make sense to everybody? My prayer is that we understand what it means to worship God and God alone in a way like we've never understood it before. I, I believe, and my goal for this talk this morning is, it, you know, I don't know if it's divine. God's goal is, is to, you to know him better, and he'll do what he does in your heart. But as I, as, I, as I think about this passage, I feel like each of us need, I know that I do, a paradigm shift on what it means to know and worship God. Does that make sense? What's a paradigm shift? Those of you who've been around for a long time have probably heard this story. And my old youth group kids used to roll their eyes every time I tell stories over and over. But sorry, I only got so many. <laughs> Pastor I knew when I was out in uh, Portland, Oregon, he used to travel a lot. He was flying back from Australia. And he talked about an airport that had this particular bag of donuts. How many of you guys like donuts? Donuts for my seven-year-old Nathan are like crack. This kid loves donuts. You put donuts in front of him and he starts to tweet, right? I mean, he, the kid needs donuts. But this guy talked about the greatest bag of donuts. And I don't know if you've ever, we used to go to this place in North Carolina in the Outer Banks where they make a bag of donuts and you watch them get dipped and fried and put in the powder. It's one of the greatest things. It's least affected by the fall, right? This thing is amazing. So he talked about a bag of donuts with that kind of affection. And so as soon as he got to the airport, he ran and he gets his bag of donuts. They put it in like a paper brown bag and he sits down and he puts it in his coat and he goes to his gate and he sits down. And as he's sitting down at the gate, he's sitting next to this woman. And this woman reaches over to the bag of donuts sitting next to him and grabs a donut, takes it out and eats it. And he's like, right? How would you be? <laughs> What are you doing? You know, he doesn't say anything. He's just uncomfortable and angry. Like, you only have so many of these. And so he reaches into the bag of donuts, takes one out, and stuffs it in his face, and he eats it. And she looks at him. And so they're having this little standoff, right? And so she reaches into the bag of donuts, grabs it out, eats it, and now he's like, So he grabs another one, and he eats one. She angrily, red-faced, grabs the bag, stands up, and leaves. And he's like, so he's furious. I mean, he's red-faced. He's angry. He, he gets over it. He's not going to chase her down. He gets onto the plane. He boards, and he sits down. And as he sits down and goes to take off his jacket, he feels that his bag of donuts are still in the jacket. How many of you guys know in that moment, this pastor had a paradigm shift, right? What he thought was his bag of donuts wasn't. And everything changed. That's really what we need to have happen. That's really what we need God's word to do in our lives. 
Because some of us come with our own understanding of things. We come with our own perspective on things, our own paradigm about things. Many people, depending on your experience, what we just did musically is really all of what worship is to you. Um, but I believe that God wants to come and reveal something more through his word. Folks, we have to be a people that come to the word of God, not with what we think it means and all of our perspectives and all of our paradigms and say, this is what we're expecting to hear from God's word. We need to come with a little bit of a surrender, with a life that says, God, who do you say that you are and how do you say I should relate to you? And let the word of God adjust us as opposed to us adjusting what he says in his word. Amen? God did some adjusting with me in relationship to this passage. Go to verse 6 with me. So what do we see leading up to verse 6? We see that God has come to Moses and he said, Okay, we're going to do this again. And those of you who have been walking with us, we recognize that there has already been a moment on the mountain where God has made covenant with his people through Moses. They made tablets. God brought the tablets. He wrote his words on them. And Moses comes down from the mountain, and these guys had thrown their jewelry into a pot, melted it down, created a golden cow, and began to worship it. And Moses gets down, and he's ticked, right? And so the people of Israel have broken their covenant with God. And here we see... God coming in, in verse, uh, verses 1 through 7, and he says, look, I'm going to do this again. Behold, in verse 10, I will make a new covenant with you. This is remarkable. Can you imagine how Moses came to this moment? They had broken their covenant with God. And God says, hey, I want you to make some tablets and come back up onto the mountain." What do you think? See, we have the benefit of hindsight here, right? We have the benefit of 2020 vision, and we can, we can see what God did and how he related to Moses. How do you think? Put yourself in Moses' shoes in this moment. What do you think he believes is going to happen to him? They've broken their covenant. God made a promise. They made a promise. God set the terms of what the promise was going to entail. He didn't even get down from the mountain yet, and they were already breaking the first commandment. Like, this isn't just like they screwed up a little. They didn't just like, you know, as an employer and employee, not work their full hours, sign in and sign out a little wrong. You know, check the internet and their Twitter page for an hour during the day. Right? This is not an employee-employer type relationship they screwed up a little. This is, this is husband and wife. They committed adultery. What's the expectation here? I think Moses probably <coughs> had running through his head, I'm probably going to die, right? The presence of God could not be in the midst of this stiff-necked, sinful people. He's probably going to kill us. You know, there's two types of people Dr. John Piper, in referencing this passage, lists these two types of people, and I think it's interesting. He lists them as people in his pastoral ministry that are the most difficult to pastor. It's, number one, the person that thinks they're too far gone, right? It's that person that believes, I can never be good enough. I'm a mess. I'm too far gone. God could never forgive me. He could never be merciful 
or gracious to me. The second type of person is the person that thinks forgiveness is just a snap. No big deal. God's gracious. He's merciful. I do whatever the heck I want and I'm good. Right? And some of us are probably somewhere in that spectrum. But there's something that God reveals in his word in Exodus 34 that should adjust the way we think about this. If you are downtrodden, if you are downcast, if you are living a life of I just never am going to be able to be in a relationship with God because of my sin, because of how I screw up, because of how messed up I am, God is about to reveal for you in, in verse 6 and 7 who he is, what his name is, and it should bring great joy and great peace to your life this morning. And if you have come into maybe a fake recognition of the grace of God and you just come to it easy and feel as though it's just a snap, this passage should bring to you some clarity of the awfulness and the depth of your sin and really the consequences of it. And as we look at Christ and what he's done for us, we should be in awe. We should have a sense of humility about God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness towards us. Amen? So God says, I'm going to do this again. Moses, come up to the mountain. Don't let anybody else come up there. Not even a sheep, all right? Like, if you wanted your animals to graze on the mountain while this is going on, they're going to die. Nobody else can be on this mountain except you. And Moses goes up there. He gets up early in the morning, takes the two tablets, he goes up. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities, transgressions, and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generations. What do we see here? We see God show up, okay? We're going to do this again, Moses. He shows up, and God comes, and he reveals his name to Moses in the midst of this covenant. He cries out, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who's merciful and gracious, who's slow to anger. How many of you guys think this is pretty amazing? Here's Moses coming up to the mountain. And he's, he's coming probably with the idea that, that potentially this could be the end of his life. This could be the moment when God makes good on his covenant. When this agreement, he calls him to an account. Because they violated the agreement. And God comes down and he comes and declares five things about who he is. He says, my name is Yahweh. Yahweh. And what that means is that I'm, I am compassionate. Meaning he genuinely cares and holds tender concern and mercy. He's merciful. He's gracious. He does things for people that they do not deserve. He goes beyond what's expected with his favor towards people who are not worthy. God is slow to anger. His patience with people that are less than satisfactory in their behavior and in their, fail, in the, in their failings, he is slow to anger. How could a God be merciful if he has a hair trigger in his temper, right? But he does not. He's slow to anger. He's abounding. He is abounding 
Overflowing. What is a bounding picture in your mind? Just an overflowing of covenant love. A love that connotates loyalty. He has a loyal covenant love. His love that is, is covenanted to us, that is loyal to us, thank God is not based on our performance, but it's based on His choice to love us. Amen? So God is abounding in truth. Whatever He says is correct, it's reliable. Life and death issues, you can rely on Him and who He is. This is what Yahweh means, and He declares to Moses His name. He declares to Moses who he is. He declares to Moses attributes about his character. I got to imagine in this moment, you or me, in this moment, there's some relief in the life of Moses, right? We see this picture of Moses as God declares Yahweh, Yahweh. Here are the five attributes about who I am and what my character is made up of. And what does Moses do? He bows his head and he worships. This is amazing. This is an amazing revelation. And then we see in verse 10, Behold, I make a covenant. What do we see? This is a covenant where there's promises, where there's terms, where there's an agreement. But it's a covenant based in what? As God has just declared who he is, it's a covenant based in his mercy. It's no different than the covenant with Abraham based in mercy and love. And the covenant and the death of Jesus Christ with us that is based in his grace and in his mercy. What we see here is this is who God is. And this is how he deals with his people. They have massively screwed up. They have violated the first commandment. They have committed adultery. And God comes and declares that he is a God that's merciful and gracious and slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast and loyal covenant love. And Moses' relief must be to cause his head to bow and to begin to worship God and plead for forgiveness. Moses comes and he's repentant. He responds to the mercy of God with what? Repentance. This is an incredible picture for us in the Old Testament. And it's a revelation of who Yahweh is. Folks, this isn't just some words on a piece of paper about a God in a particular religion. This is the God who we worship. This is who he is. It's not a God who, in many of the other major religions, would cause us to check off a list of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs, and he's sitting in heaven waiting to slam us and hurt us, and we have to somehow be good enough to earn his love. This is a God who loves us and is merciful and is gracious and is slow to anger, who is forgiving our transgressions for thousands of generations. This is the God we worship. He's revealed himself in this passage to us. Amen? There's a little bit of a problem in this passage if you just read it quickly. Because what we see is this is a God who at the same time keeps his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So what do we see in this passage? It can produce in us as we look at that verse an apparent contradiction, right? How, how does he forgive, and how is he merciful, and at the same time, by no means, will he clear the guilty? You need to be guilty to be forgiven, right? So who are the guilty people that he forgives and the guilty people that he doesn't? 
And as we look at the whole of Scripture, as this has become and is one of the most quoted Old Testament Scriptures throughout the rest of Scripture and into the New Testament, what we see is we see those who are repentant, those who respond as Moses did, those who come with a heart of repentance, he is merciful and forgiving. And those, like as uh, the, next the next verse talks about, those who are stiff-necked and continue in their sin, he allows the course of sin for generations to take its effect and hold on generation after generation. So what, let, let me just be clear without going into all of it as we look at this passage. God is not saying that children have to pay for the sins of their fathers that they themselves didn't commit. Because in Ezekiel, he makes it clear that that's not the case. But what he will do if you are repentant is he will forgive and have mercy on you. But if you continue in the course of the sin of your fathers and you're stiff-necked and remain unrepentant in your heart, he allows sin to take its natural course in the lives of future generations. Is that not a challenge to us dads and moms? I, I can't tell you how many times I see a reaction out of one of my kids? How many of you guys have been there? With a quick snap of anger towards their sibling. And I think to myself, oh God, they're just like me. How many of you guys have ever been there before? I see things in my kids. And I think in my heart, I wonder where they got that from. And recognize that it came right from their opportunity to view and see me do it. And it's been something that they have contracted, like a disease. And I think to myself, how much more is a dad do I need to pursue sanctification in a very serious way so that I can see that translate and transform into my kids? How much more do I need to come to God with a repentant heart for my sin, recognizing his grace, recognizing his mercy, recognizing his forgiveness has already happened in Jesus and that there's nothing I can do to add to it, there's nothing I can do to earn it, but I still need to come with a very serious repentant heart to say, God, forgive me for the way that I act so that you can, through your spirit, walk something out in my life that produces sanctification so I, I behave more like you. How many of you guys have ever been in that place before with me? And I recognize it here in this passage, that God would do a work in my heart that I would begin to change and begin to behave in a covenant relationship with God more like I should, even though he's shown grace. Because he's shown grace, I should worship him more in my life. Amen? And I should begin to change and pursue sanctification in a serious way. If not for me, so that my kids would begin to recognize that. And that they would repent. And that they would turn. And that they would recognize their need to change in light of and in view of the grace and mercy of God. Amen? So we see God who's merciful. I don't believe these attributes could be looked at enough. And I'm going to move quicker because I know I'm running out of time. But this is something for us to take a look at together as a church. 
This is something for us to study and to, and to get into more. Who, who does God reveal himself to be? This is a God who's compassionate. This is a God who's gracious. This is a God who's slow to anger. This is a God who's abounding in covenant love. Should I respond to who he's revealed himself to be, to me, should I respond in worship, not just as I stand in church on a Sunday morning and hear songs, but should I respond in worship with my life? Should my life be worship in the way that I treat people? Am I compassionate? Am I abounding and overflowing in love? Am I slow to anger? Do I have a covenant love that never changes? Am I truthful? Maintaining loyalty, forgiving. This is who God revealed himself to be in this covenant. And on the basis of this mercy and on the basis of this grace, and on the basis of his character, he then enters into a new covenant with his people. And we see this covenant. We see the terms of the covenant. And, and, and what we see in, initially in the first covenant that they broke, we see what did the people do? Instead of resting in God's value and who he was, they became restless. And they carved out uh, images in their own hands and in their own workmanship. And they exchanged the glory in the, in, the, in the amazing wonder of the invisible God for the glory of their own golden cow. Right? How stupid is that? But how often do we do that? Right? I mean, take a look at this with me. What did they do in the first covenant that screwed it up so that we needed this second covenant? So that they needed this second covenant. What they did is they, they did not rest in the value of who God was, but they got restless. And they, they wanted to create something of value with their own hands, so they made a golden cow so they could worship it. I think this is something we need to take a look at in our relationship with God. Because God has declared to you and me who he is. Take a look with me at John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. God uses the same exact words in this passage that he used in Exodus 34. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Grace and steadfast love. Those are the words. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From the law given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known in Jesus. What do we recognize today? That God continues his graciousness and his truth, his steadfast, loyal, covenant love to us because he sent Jesus. What do we recognize from the covenant with Moses as we've walked through Exodus? That, that these Ten Commandments, that this law that was laid out is something that each one of us in our sin, according to Romans 3, are incapable of living up to. Am I right? It has become the mirror. It's become for the contractor the plumb line that drops down like a weighted uh, uh, string so that you can see that the wall is crooked. 
It's the mirror so that you can look into it. And that which you did not know was sin, you now recognize as sin. And as we look at the law of God, as I look at the law of God, I recognize and I feel, we should feel a sense that Moses felt as he went up on the mountain. That in the presence of God, in relationship to my sin and his holiness, I should be dead. But God, gracious, merciful, full of steadfast love sent Jesus full of graciousness and truth, steadfast love that is loyal, that is covenant love. He came. And it says in John chapter 1, he dwelt among us. He pitched his tent, meaning he, he came and inhabited the presence of his people. And he lived the life, folks, that we couldn't live. He came so that he could be, as we see in the law of Moses, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Jesus came, the only one who could be the one and only sacrifice for all of us. The ultimate expression of God's grace and mercy is he paid for all of sin, of all mankind, saved up from Adam to the end of the world. He paid for it by sacrificing his one and only son. He butchered him on, on our behalf. And as they would sacrifice the animal in the Mosaic Covenant and walk between it to say, if I were to break my covenant, let me be like this animal. Jesus came as the perfect lamb. Jesus came as the expression of God's mercy and grace and steadfast love. And he died so you don't have to. Amen? He died so I don't have to. He died the death that we deserve as he hung on the cross. And he became the most amazing moment in the history of the world. He became all of sin, all of those wrongs, all of those awful things that we see in this world. From our, from our own disloyalty and sin to the worst sins you can think of. He paid for all of it to make it right because God is just and he's merciful and gracious and has a steadfast covenant love towards his people that what are frankly many times adulterous. What, what should this produce in us? This should produce in us not a sense like in other religions where we have to do this and do that and do this to somehow earn God's favor, but this should produce in us an understanding of, wow, we have a gracious, merciful God full of steadfast love. And the only response I can have to that is what? Worship. My affection for him should be great. As we read further on in this passage, and for time, I'm not going to go through every single thing I have written down today. But we see that God is a jealous God in verses 13 through 17. And he declares to them what he said in the first commandment. He says, listen, I want you guys, as I give the, all the ites into your hands, I, I want you to tear down their altars. I want you to rip down their worship places. I want you to get rid of all of it. Don't give your daughters to their sons. I want you to, it's almost like a husband that would look to his wife and say, hey, get rid of all the pictures of your ex-boyfriends, okay? Don't keep them in a shoebox. 
lest you should be drawn away or your affection should go again towards those old gods that you had. And God is not an employer-employee, but as a husband towards his wife, towards his bride. He says, tear down their altars. Get rid of their gods. Don't give your daughters to their sons. Because I'm declaring to you as in the first commandment, worship me and me alone. Your affection should be towards me. That's his goal. Amen? He's a jealous God. This, this should evoke in us some emotion. Because... I mean, think about it. I'm not a violent God. Violent God. I'm not a violent guy. Sorry. <laughs> not a God at all. As a prosecutor, I've handled hundreds, probably thousands of assaults. I, so I'm not, listen, I'm not saying we should hit people, okay? But what is that one thing in your mind, dudes, all the guys sitting here, that it just becomes okay? And I, I probably shouldn't even say this. Are we recording this? <laughs> I can't, listen, I'm 40. I woke up this morning, and for no reason, my knee hurt. How many of you guys have ever been there? Like, all I did was walk around and watch kids trick-or-treat last night. <laughs> and my knee hurts, and I have no idea why, right? I, I think of that old country song. I had, I had glory days. I wrestled my whole life. That was like my sport because I'm 5'4", right? So I wrestled my whole life, and there was probably a day when I thought I was tougher than I was. But I'm definitely that old country song, or not old, the newer country song. I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was, I hope, right? I got about a good 30 seconds in me, and then I'm... But what is that thing? What's that one thing that, you know, that I can't conceive of anything that would ever make me hit somebody? Touch my wife. Someone says something to your wife. Someone tries to draw away the affection of your wife or says something inappropriate, it's like almost okay. I'm not saying it's okay because I'm a prosecutor. But it's... <laughs> it's like one of those things, we'll read the police reports and it's like some dude caught one in the jaw and you're reading it and, and he says, yeah, but he said this to my wife. And even the cops go... <laughs> you know, maybe you should just take your sore jaw and go home. Okay? <laughs> There's something about that in our culture is is uh, wimpy as our culture has become. There's something about that in our culture that still, it's like, ah! God is a jealous God for his bride. You may not be making a golden cow and worshiping it in your basement, because that would be weird, but, but what are the things that are drawing your affections away from the merciful, gracious, steadfast, loving God? who has sent his son as an expression of his ultimate love and mercy towards you, who died on a cross for you because you had no capability of saving yourself. But as you come with a repentant heart and, and respond to his grace, he saves you. He loves you. His love never changes for you. He wants to be in relationship with you, and he's jealous for you. What are the things that are possibly taking your affections away from him? How often do we, like the people of Israel, as soon as Moses went up to the mountain and got a little bit too long, and they thought, geez, what's going on? Where's God? Where's Moses? What's the deal? I don't know. Let's make a cow and worship it. But how, how often do we do that? God, I'm waiting for you to respond to my life in a particular way. You know what? I'm done waiting. I'm going to take care of it, and I'm going this way. And our affections get drawn away from God. 
Our affection go towards, as Jeremiah talks about, we, we have the fountains of living water that we can drink from when we're thirst no more. And we keep running back to broken cisterns full of dirt to drink out of. I'm going to pursue leisure. I'm going to pursue, I don't know, making enough money so I can retire and chase a white ball for the rest of my life. Or I'm going to pursue uh, some sort of medication through, through just excessive party. Or, or I'm going to pursue this relationship outside of marriage or, or perform marriage. Or I'm going I'm to pursue all these things that God has told us to stay away from and to, and to tear down the altars of the other gods. But to worship him and, and have your affections towards him only. And he's a God who's not just a jealous God and, and, a, and a faithful, loving, steadfast, loving God. He's a God of loyalty who will protect you, who will keep you safe, who will, who will take care of you as your affections go towards Him. And so many times, we leave our affections towards Him and we pursue other things. What are we doing? We don't hear anything else today. And I'm going to close with this. As Romans 12 says, in view of the mercy of God, Romans 12, in view of the mercies of God, Paul says it like this, in view of all that stuff I just talked about, the cross of Jesus Christ, the mercy and the steadfast love of God, isn't it just reasonable that I would give my life as a living sacrifice to him, which is my reasonable service of worship. It's reasonable for me to spend the rest of my life worshiping God with my life, with my affections towards him, in view of everything he's done for me. How many of you guys are with me in that? He's revealed to us who he is. He's awesome. He's merciful. He's loving. Folks, young people, older people, middle-aged people, as you are pursuing your life today, will you just with me take a moment, get a little introspective and say, where's my affections? Am I worshiping God with my life in view of who he is, in view of what he's done? Let's go after him and not be distracted by these other gods. Amen? Pray with me. The worship team comes forward. Let's just take a minute. Ask us to help. Ask him to help us worship him better. Jesus, we worship you this morning. You've revealed to us that you're Yahweh. And everything that that means is so overwhelming. We don't take your grace and your mercy and your loyal covenant love. We don't take it lightly. This morning, we recognize our tendency towards sin and for our affections to be drawn away. And we say, God, in view of your mercy, in view of your love, in view of Jesus, who is the ultimate expression of Yahweh for us, we respond to you and we worship you. <coughs> Help us to accept your mercy and your grace and to worship you with our lives the way we treat our spouses, the way we raise our kids, the way we work our jobs, the way we interact with our neighbors. God, let that be our worship, not just in song, but with our life. Help us to worship you in the way that we love each other, like John 13, 35 says. They're going to know we follow you by the way we love each other. 
Help us to love each other different because of who you are. To be those folks like you that are abounding in love, that are slow to anger, that are forgiving and merciful and gracious to others. Not arrogant, stiff-necked, finger-pointing people, but those who recognize your grace and allow it to produce humility and your attributes in our lives. That's our prayer. Let our worship be our life. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen.